After Dad's funeral was over, we, uh, we left the, the church, and my daughter, my nephew was driving my daughter's car, and my mom and my brothers were following them, and there was a car turning left, and beside the left lane, there was a turn to the right, I believe it was, I wasn't there, but uh, they, that car was turning left, so they inched by or on the right-hand side, and when they, when they both went by the car, and there was a truck somewhere in the vicinity, and evidently he started honking, and you know he, he didn't like what they did, and uh, so he pulled out and got behind him, and at the next big light, he's right beside my daughter's car, and my nephew's driving, my daughter's in the passenger seat, and he rolls down his window and starts yelling at them to roll down their window, and uh, they do like all the rest of us would have done. They look dead ahead, <laughs> pretending they're not hearing him. Nobody's rolling down a window. And the next thing you know, the guy gets out of the car, out of the truck, at a big stoplight, big intersection, gets out, comes running around the car, and gets opposite my nephew and starts screaming at my nephew through the window. And so my nephew rolls down the window just a little bit, and he says to the man that we're, they're just coming from a, a funeral, and the man says, well, I'm sorry about that, but he keeps right on screaming. Have you ever been the recipient of someone's bad, maybe even evil behavior towards you? We're going to talk about that uh, this morning. The passage we're looking at speaks to that. It's the passage we studied on Tuesday morning for those men that come on Tuesday morning. I'm sure you've recognized that already, but as we sat there Tuesday morning, I just felt impressed that this was something God would want me to share with all of us, and so that's what I'm going to do today. Chapter 3 in First Peter, in my New American Standard version of the Bible, it, it lists that chapter title as godly living, and so really this chapter in Peter speaks to what it means to live for God or to live for the Lord Jesus. Now I'm going to skip over the first two sections. One is addressing the ladies, the sisters in our church, or, or the wives in our church. The other is addressing the husbands or men in our church. I'm going to skip over that, and I'm going to start at verse 8. Let me read it again, just a few verses at a time. To sum up, Peter says, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For we were called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. Let me stop there. What does it look like for you and me to follow Jesus? Because that's what we claim to do, right? We claim to be followers of the Lord Jesus. What does that look like in our life? Well, Peter is going to give us some very specific, I think, very clear illustrations or explanations of what it looks like in our life if we follow Christ. And in the first thing that he's going to reference, as he sums up the things that he's maybe already said to this point, these things have to do with our character, you know, one of the things, Dick and I didn't talk about this, but in his prayer uh, beforehand, he was talking about how Peter probably, probably wasn't like Peter is in this prayer, right? He was probably different. And I was imagining the Peter that we read about in our Bible, and I would agree with Dickie that chances are Peter changed. And, and by the way, listen, that's what happens to us when we follow Jesus. We can't help but change. He comes into our life by his spirit, and he, he's told us he's going to make us different. 
And here's what he says about our character. Here's how our character is going to change. And he lists five traits. And let me just kind of go through them really quickly. First one he mentions is our harmonious. We'll be harmonious. We'll, we'll live in harmony. Other translations, your translation may say unity of mind, all of one mind. Others may say have unity in spirit. The, the word actually means common thinking. We're going to think the same. Now, what Peter's talking about there is not that we're going to think the same on everything. I mean, we're all different. We have different experiences. We, we, we have different, you know, our lives have been fashioned and formed differently from one another. So we're not always going to see things exactly the same. Even when we're looking at the Word of God, we're going to understand things that God says in His book, you know, maybe a little bit different. But, but there are some things that I believe that Peter would have in mind when he says, we're going to think the same about these things. And this is just Jimmy, but here's three of them I want to suggest to you. One of them is that we think the same in this way. We love Jesus with all our person. This isn't a chant. I'm not trying to get us to do a chant. We love Jesus with our whole person. And our desire should be, is, we think the same on this, is to please him with everything we are. We think the same in this way. We love God's word and we are going to pursue understanding it and living it to the very best of our ability. And the third thing I wrote down is that we think the same in this way. We love each other as much as we love ourselves and we are even willing to prefer one another as more important than ourselves. We, we so love one another. We think the same on this that we love each other. We are family. And, and, and in being family, we are not only just family, but we are willing to prefer one another, you know, over, over each other. I tell you, in my family, that's, you know, not, that's not always been true in, in, in people's immediate families. I, I've been a pastor for all these years, and, and I've listened, and I know this is not always true, but it's true in my family, in my immediate family. You know, we prefer one another as more important than ourselves. And, and here's what Peter is saying. This is how we are in our family. We prefer each other as more important because we love one another. We think the same on this. And we love God's book. And we're willing to try to understand it with all our heart and live by it. And most importantly of all, we love Jesus with everything that's in our being. And we want to, we desire to please him. We desire to to make him big in our lives and in our family. The second thing Peter says is sympathy. We need to have this, this feeling that we need to feel with one another what we feel. That's, that's actually what the words mean. They, they, they were originally used when, when you suffered like me. In other words, like um, Sarah that we watched the video of. None of, us can, none of us can relate to that. We haven't been through that. But pretend for just a moment that you had been through that then you would be able to sympathize with Sarah because you would know what it was like to be in that situation. That's where the word originally came from, to suffer in the exact same way. But the idea is here we feel the feelings that our brothers and sisters have. And I tell you, Jesus had that. I mean, at Lazarus' tomb, people are weeping and Jesus begins to cry at the tomb. Why does he cry? I, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I think he cries because he's sympathetic to their feelings. You know, 
you know, with dad's death, I'm sorry, but for a few weeks, I guess this is going to creep into my talks. But, you know, as, you know, Ann said to me, you know, Jimmy, whatever you do at the funeral, don't look out and see anybody crying because if you see them crying, you're going to cry. And you know what? God was good. I saw people crying, but I didn't cry. But normally that's the truth, isn't it? You see somebody cry and you cry. And, and Peter says, this is what we're like. We cry with each other and we rejoice with each other. I have to tell y'all, I felt your sympathy in the last two weeks. I felt your love, your, your feelings with me. I, I felt it. Thank you. Brotherly love is the third one. You know, uh, I love my three brothers. There's, just that, there's some kind of connection between me and those three men that were born of my parents. And I, I love them. My mother said to me, you know, at some, in the course of the last two weeks, she said, you know what I love, what, what I am so thankful for? I'm so thankful that you four boys love each other. And I tell you what, I had sympathy with that. Because I know what it makes, how it makes me feel that my six children absolutely love each other. And they would prefer, I think, almost to be with each other. Anna's giving me looks, so maybe I'm wrong, right? <laughs> but, but I don't think I'm wrong. That, that they love each other to the point that when they come home, they got to have one of them being there too because they don't want to be with mom and dad, right? <laughs> no, they love each other. And I know how that makes me feel. Now listen to what I'm going to say here. There is something about the fact that we were both, all four of us, born to the same mom and dad. But we are brothers and sisters. And that same connection that I have to those three men is the kind of connection that we have to have and should have to one another. We should love each other like we're blood brothers and sisters, maybe even more so for our our relationship is eternal and our destiny together is eternal. And we should have this kind of brotherly love. And obviously, everyone understood that. And I realize that some of you don't have good sibling relationships and maybe you don't know, you haven't experienced this, but this is what he's referencing. Kind-hearted is the next thing that Peter says. Our hearts as followers of Jesus should be kind, should have tender feelings toward one another. You know, not, not hardened hearts, but kind and tender and gracious and good hearts to one another. That's, that's what Jesus does in our character. He makes us kind-hearted. I mean, think about it for just a moment. Think about your Savior. Think about what you know from those first four books of the, of the New Testament. What stands out? Is it not Jesus' tender-heartedness towards people, His kindness, His graciousness, when other people are treating people with disrespect and rudeness and, and some sort of uh, self-aggrandizement where they think they're superior to them? What do we call that? Looking, looking down on others? Jesus doesn't look down on anybody, but if anybody had a right to look down on anybody, it would have been the, the, the Son of God, right? But He didn't. He looked, he looked up. He showed kindness to them. And the last word is humbleness. And this word carries the idea of being willing to lower ourselves. Now, in the first century, listen to me carefully. In the first century, humility was a weakness. It was viewed as a weakness. And you know what? Even in our day, humility is viewed as a weakness. I can remember when President Bush put up the sign on the aircraft carrier. Remember that mission impossible? I mean, mission accomplished. Y'all remember that? 
Uh, and then hey, he was ragged so much for the fact that it really wasn't accomplished and we lacked years of accomplishing the mission. And I remember saying to someone, why doesn't President Bush just go on air one night and say, man, I made a mistake, everybody. I thought we had accomplished it, but I was wrong, man. We, we're, we've still been at this for two years, and we're still not accomplished it yet. I'm, man, I was wrong. And the person said back to me, no, he cannot do that, because to do that is to show a weakness. And I thought, really? Really? To, to be honest and to be humble about the fact I made a mistake is somehow weakness? I'm telling you, our world still sees it as weakness, but that is not how God sees humility. Being willing to put yourself under others, to be willing to forego number one place for number two place for somebody else's benefit, that is a strength as far as God's concerned. After all, he himself did it for us, lowering himself rung after rung after rung on that ladder of self-importance. Though he's equal with God, he considers equality with God not something to hold on to, but he lowers himself, becomes like us. Hey, but not just like us, he becomes a servant. Hey, but not just a servant, a servant who's willing to die for us. So Jesus keeps just lowering himself. And so I'm telling you, everybody, humility, humility is a strength. It's not a, it's not a weakness. Now, this shows up in our Bibles all the time. Here's Paul. That was Peter. Here's Paul, Colossians chapter 3. So as to those who have been chosen of God, that's us, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now let me ask you, doesn't that sound just like Peter? Just like him. Let's go to the Old Testament, minor prophet Zephaniah. You'll probably hear from the minor prophets quite a bit in the next few weeks and months ahead too. But Zephaniah chapter 7 verse 9, thus has the Lord of hosts said, he's speaking to these exiles who've come back from Babylon, dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother and do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger, or the poor. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Doesn't that sound like Peter and Paul? Or maybe I should say, don't Peter and Paul sound like Zephaniah from the Old Testament? You see, this is God's heart. So here's my rhetorical question for us. And I think this and what I'm going to say next are the reason why I felt like God wanted me to talk to you all about this this week. Here's my rhetorical question. As a follower of Jesus, because that's what you claim, as a follower of Jesus, is your life characterized by kindness, by compassion, by, by love, by the pursuit of unity, by willing to humble yourself and promote others over yourself? Is that what characterizes your life? Now, if it doesn't, here's my challenge. My challenge is following Jesus is a lifetime endeavor, everybody. And so just because maybe right now as I take a self-examining look at my heart and I say, wow, Lord, I'm really not a very compassionate person. I mean, that's not the end all. I mean, humility is being willing to admit that, but now comes the hard work of repentance. The hard work of saying, Lord, I'm not a compassionate person, but you are. I want to be, so help me walk that out in my life. Or if, if you're not a very kind person, Lord, help me become a kind person rather than a harsh or a hardened person. You, you get it? So just because we're dropping the ball in one of these areas, I mean, it's not the end of the world. It's actually the beginning of change. It's actually the beginning of trying to, to make myself 
or, or to allow the Spirit of God. I don't want to make it all about us, but I'm telling you, there's an us side to change. There's an us side to change. It's not like I sit back and, oh, God, change me. I cannot change apart from the work of His Spirit, but I'm telling you, there's an us side to this change that needs to take place. And so if one of those things are an area you need to work on, you need to work on it, okay? Jesus repeatedly said, I, I came not to be served, but to serve, to give my life for you guys. That's how we should be. Now, following Jesus affects our character, but in verse 9, it affects our, our actions. Look at verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Now, here's what, here's what Peter is saying there. We do not respond. It's not just about our character, everybody. It's about what we do. And we do not respond in like kind. So people's rudeness and their verbal insults and their unkind actions, they do not give me a right to reciprocate. I'm not, I'm not okay to turn around and do the same thing to them that they just did to me. As a matter of fact, what Peter says, you were called to, what does it say in your text? Somebody? You were called to? Bless. <laughs> Where am I? I'm at verse 9. All right. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving blessing instead. Their rudeness doesn't give you a right to be rude in return. Their unkindness doesn't give you a right to be unkind in return. As a matter of fact, though, God says, here's what you're going to do out of the character that he just described. You're going to turn around and you're going to bless. You're going to turn around and you're going to be gracious. You're going to turn around and you're going to be good. You're not going to be that way. Now, Jesus taught us this in, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 43. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And remember, Jesus has done all of this for us. So on the cross, being killed and murdered, painful death, heading that way, he says, Father, get them. Burn them in hell. God, destroy them. God, hurt them like they're hurting me. You know that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Because I don't know what they're doing. I'm telling you, everybody, it's not just our character, but our actions change. The Apostle Paul would say this in Romans chapter 12, verse 17. He says, never, ever repay evil with evil. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to have a, a character that's transformed, that's kind and good and loving and humble. And, and that same character then works itself out in my life where instead of me hurting back people who hurt me, I, I am seeking to bless them. I'm seeking to, you know, I, I give them drink. I give them feed. I, I, I do kind things to them. I overcome their evil with goodness. And the story I told you at the beginning 
It was all my daughter could do to hold my nephew in the car. He wanted to get out. He wanted to go meet the man toe-to-toe, face-to-face, volume-to-volume, right? And uh, that's, not, that's not how we respond. It's not. Now, you know, how should we respond? I, we, we roll the window down. We talk to the guy. say, sir, you know, I'm sorry. How have we offended you? Let him talk it out. And then you say, you know, if, if, they, if he's right, agree with him. Seek his forgiveness. That's, I don't have to go toe-to-toe. I don't have. It's not a strength. It's not a strength for me to go back at him and match his venom with my own. It's not. It's not what God desires of us. How do you act when you are offended? Do you retaliate with like, like kind? Some of you are saying, well, I, I, I would not retaliate. I, would, I don't scream. I don't yell. I wouldn't hit them. You know, I'd never do any of that stuff. You know, and, and you're probably right. But you know what? We can retaliate in many other ways that are just as evil. We can take the person who's hurt us and we can gossip about them. We can turn around and start talking and saying slanderous things about them to anybody who will listen. We can uh, shut them out. This is one thing we do a lot. We do this as Christians, by the way. We shut, you, we shut each other out. You hurt me. Hey, I'm done. I'm walking away. I, you know, and, and, I, and I just, you know, I'll be nice to you and cordial to you, but I'm not letting you in my life anymore. And, and please, I, I know there's extremes. And, and please, please don't, don't take everything I'm saying to the extreme. I know there are extremes. But generally, God's not calling us to retaliate in that sort of way. He's not causing us, he's not calling us to be, to repay evil uh, with evil. Now, what Peter does next is he quotes their Bible for them. Okay? They don't have a New Testament. In fact, Peter's writing the New Testament even as he writes this letter. But in verse 10 through verse 12, he quotes the Old Testament. For the one who desires life to love and to see good deeds, do good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayers. But the face, face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And he's quoting Psalm 34 right there. And just personally, I think when he's talking about if you desire to see good days and all that, I think he's talking about, you know, the thing that God has prepared for us in the end, the new heavens and the new earth, and all that God has prepared. I think he's talking about that. But regardless of what he's specifically talking about, he says good days in life come about by us showing kindness and pursuing righteousness and, and seeking peace with people. He says, he's quoting the psalm and says, this is what God says. I want to say to y'all, listen to me carefully, everybody. There's a difference between thinking peace is a good thing and pursuing peace. There is. What I mean by that, you can think peace is a good thing, but you're not willing to lift a finger to pursue it. And that is not what God is calling you and me as a follower of Jesus to do. We are to pursue peace. Remember what Paul said, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, okay? So pursuing peace means that, that I'm the one that seeks to restore broken relationships. I pursue that. And so when you've hurt me, I, I, don't, I don't lock you out and close you out. I, I pursue restoring that relationship. If I'm the one that did the breaking, I pursue humbling myself and going to you and saying, I'm so sorry for what I did or what I said that, that hurt. And I, you know, that was just, that's not, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? See, pursuing peace means I take the initiative. And that's what Peter's calling us to here. He's saying we need to be the ones who are willing to humble ourselves and then, and then in humility act. And this is what God says 
in the Old Testament is what his desire was even back then. So nothing's changed. Now, notice at the end of this psalm, quote, the psalm says, God is watching. God is watching. God takes note of the righteous. And, and again, I couldn't help but remember the Malachi passage. I quoted this at dad's funeral. But remember the Malachi passage? A book of remembrance was written before God for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord, on the day I prepared my own possession. I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. And I'm going to interject my own words before verse 18. And, and, and so God says, And all of you who say that God doesn't distinguish between the righteous and the unrighteous, God says, So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. I mean, God is watching and God is taking note of us following Him. And, and, and here He says, Man, I'm, I'm writing their names in a book. I'm writing their names in a book. In verse 13, Peter asked a question. And uh, in verse 13, he asked the question with some follow-up affirmations. Let's read it, verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for, sake, uh, for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep good conscience, so that in the thing which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Now the first question that Peter asked there, it's pretty obvious, or it's pretty Here's what he says. He says, you know, uh, what harm comes to you when you're zealous for doing good? When you're doing good, what harm comes to you? And, and the answer is this. You know, if you do good, guys, you're going to avoid all kinds of bad things in life. And it's the truth. Your decisions often lead to so many bad things and negative things in your life. Again, as a pastor, I'm privy to this. Decisions we make, things we do, they end up leading us down a path that leads to lots of suffering and misery. And so the Apostle Paul says, you know, if you follow Christ, if you let Jesus rule in your life and in your heart, he says, man, if you're, if you're, jealous, for, I mean, if you're jealous for good, what harm is going to come to you? A lot of good stuff's going to come to you if you live for Jesus. And that's true. He's so right. But then he's not so naive as to say that's always the case, because it's not. And so in verse 14, he says, but even if you are zealous for what is good and you suffer for, the right, for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And then what the apostle Peter does is he kind of gives them four distinct instructions that if you suffer, remember these four things. So let me tell you what they are. Now, I know we suffer in life, okay, and, and maybe we're not suffering for righteousness' sake. Maybe we do suffer a little bit for that, but nothing like the stuff that we heard yesterday. But, but let me show you four distinct instructions for when and if we ever do suffer for Christ, or even if you're suffering in this life from something. Here's the first one. He says, focus on Christ rather than your fears. Focus on Christ. We heard that. In fact, you, one of the reasons, I know it was a little bit long, and I apologize for the quality of the video. It was just too dark, and I don't understand why. It wasn't dark yesterday, but it was dark this morning. And, um, but I don't know if you heard uh, Sarah say that she was so afraid. I've never been so afraid. You know, we're afraid, everybody, when suffering's coming our way and we see it. I mean, our first initial reaction is to be afraid. 
But what do you do with that fear? Look at what Peter says. He says, do not fear, do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Here's what he's saying. When the fear wells up in you, you're going to have to look past the fear and look to Jesus. Look to the Lord Jesus. Let him take your fear away. Let him deal with it. Let him help you with it. In Luke chapter 12, verse 4, Jesus said, My friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more than they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So even Jesus was telling us, he says, guys, don't fear men. You know, and again, I don't think he's love God, fear God. Choose to look unto Jesus, right, when you're afraid. The second thing Peter says is be ready to give an answer. So here's, here, listen, make up our minds right now, everybody, that when we suffer, let's, let's not suffer in silence. Let's use our suffering as a bridge to help people come to Christ, right? So Peter says, always be ready to give a defense for the faith that you have, for, what, for, for your belief. Be ready to give a defense. We heard, we, we watched the beginning of Wormbrand's, you know, biography movie that's come out here. I know a couple of you have seen the whole thing, but we watched the previews for it. And, and one of the things that, that Wormbrand did was he just continually, through those 14 years of imprisonment, continually gave defense for his faith, continued to talk about the Lord Jesus. You know, we, we don't need to be quiet. We, uh, we need to give answers to those who are persecuting us. The third thing Peter says is reply with gentleness. You know, again, we're so sorely tempted when people do us wrong to turn around and do, and do the same thing to him, to use verbal attacks, you know, to, to just to lay out our tormentors. And Peter says, don't do that. Don't do that. Respond to them in gentleness and kindness, just as Jesus did. Peter's going to tell us this later on in this, either this book or the next one, letter. He says, Jesus, who was reviled, did not revile in return. He didn't, he didn't do the same thing. He didn't take his words and turn them on those who were killing him. And the last thing, the last thing is, is keep a clear conscience. Keep a clear conscience. In other words, what that means is, hey, no matter if you're suffering, no matter what people are doing to you, remember that the Spirit of God lives within us. I can't, I'm not to violate my own conscience. We know what's right and wrong. He says, speak righteously, speak with gentleness, and, and don't violate your conscience so that people can, in turn, people will in turn uh, want to know this God that, uh, that you're talking about. Remember, Peter says, 1 Peter 3, 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Peter isn't asking you or me to do anything that, that Jesus hasn't done for us. Okay, listen, again, don't miss the point of this whole talk this morning. The point of this whole talk is that you claim and I claim to be followers of Jesus. Jesus is our king. Listen, this, this following Jesus thing, guys, it's not just about intellectually what I believe. Yes, there is a belief component to this, right? But faith, is, faith and faithfulness go hand in hand. We are followers of the Lord Jesus. We're, we're like Him. We want to be like Him. We want to be conformed into His image. That is what He said is the goal. Dietrich, you're going to be like Him one day because that's what He's doing in your life. Jessica, that's what he's doing in your life. That's what he's doing in my life, all of our lives, okay? And so we want to be like him. Verse 18, 
For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. I'm going to end with that text there, but let me, let me work our way through verse 18. Here's, here's what Peter says, and really this is the good news. One of the things at the conference yesterday that, that the, one brother was telling us about his dad, and he, he said his dad always said, everywhere he went, his dad would say, can I tell you the greatest gift the world has ever received? And, uh, and that's, that's how he would start. Can I tell you about the greatest gift the world has ever received? And I was so curious as to how he'd follow that up, what he'd say to that. But he said that everywhere. And as I was going through the text this morning, and I think I said, maybe, maybe he would take this 1 Peter 3.18 verse, and this is how he'd follow it up. Here's the greatest gift. He says, and it's the good news. It's what we believe. It's what unites us. It's what makes us brothers and sisters, all right? Christ died for sins. The wages of our sin is death. Jesus suffered that death for us. That penalty, he bore our death. Now, we're all going to die once, but Jesus died for us the second death. We will not experience the second death. Jesus bore it for us. Christ died once for all. Christ died just one time, everybody. Jesus doesn't need to die over and over and over. His sacrifice isn't perpetual. It's never going to be repeated. It was once and for all. And, and he did it that one time, and he did it for everybody. And so in 1 Timothy 2.6, it says he gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. In Hebrews 2.9, it says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. He tasted my death. My death is temporary. When I die, I will rise again. Jesus tasted my death. He took the death of, I mean, he took my death. Other people, he tasted their death, but they'll still die the second death. And then my favorite is 1 John 2, 2. And he is the propitiation of our sins. Whose our sins? Us believers. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus died once for all. Peter goes on. Christ the just died for us the unjust. Okay? Peter and Paul says this. He says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And then the last part of that, Christ, or the next last part, Christ died to bring us to God. Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And then the last part of verse 18, Christ died but was made alive again by the Spirit. Now, let me just say that in that verse there, if I had time, I would explain to you that in the Greek, that can be read in two ways. One, it can be Christ was made alive in the Spirit, or it can be Christ was made alive by the Spirit. Many of your translations will say in the Spirit. But I want to tell you, I don't think that's right. Let me tell you why I don't think that's right. For two reasons. Number one is that Jesus died in the flesh and he wasn't raised in the Spirit. He was raised or he wasn't raised in the spirit realm or the Spirit. I believe that he was raised in the flesh. He was raised bodily with a new body, like our body, but new, glorified. He wasn't raised in the spirit. He was raised bodily from the dead. And if it refers to Jesus in some sort of spiritual raising, then he hadn't been raised yet. He had not been raised from the dead yet. And so I think the better way of understanding that is, is I guess you were reading from the NIV. 
that what you're reading from? The NIV, my translation, NASB, says in the Spirit. But I think the better translation is that he was raised by the Spirit. Jesus died in the flesh and was raised by the Holy Spirit. Now, the Bible concurs with this. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then Romans 8, 11, And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also bring our mortal bodies to life through His Spirit who lives in you. Here's what Paul said in Romans 8. God raised Jesus from the dead by his spirit, and that same spirit who raised Jesus is going to raise Jimmy Acri one day from the dead. He's going to give life to me again. He's going to raise me immortal, and he's going to raise me to live with him eternally, and he's going to raise me different than I am today without a sinful nature. Now, let me be clear. Let me be clear. The Bible says that God raised Jesus. The Bible says the Father raised Jesus. The Bible says the Spirit raised Jesus. The Bible says Jesus raised Jesus. Now, which is it? The answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. God raised Jesus from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus raised, the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. But I, I believe that's what Peter is alluding to here, that Christ died. He died for sins. He died once for all. He died the just for the unjust. And he died to bring us to God. And he died, and yet the Spirit made him alive. And that's why we believe. Now, let me read you one more thing, then I'm done. Okay, this is in my notes. I'm going to read you verbatim in my notes. Now, the next two verses are some of the hardest to interpret in the entire Bible. I thought about stopping at verse 18, but it's just not in my nature to do so. The next two verses are two of the hardest verses in the Bible to understand. And at Tuesday breakfast the other day, I, you know, the guys, we were talking about it, none of us had a real answer. But I got an answer, so Tuesday morning at breakfast, if you want to come in, we're going to talk about those two verses again and, and what, how we can possibly understand those verses. I'm not sure why I so felt impressed on Tuesday morning to talk on this passage. I guess it's because it's how I see our Savior all throughout the scriptures. Please don't misunderstand. Jesus was a manly man. Jesus was a man who stood up to injustice. He was a man, remember he's the guy who threw over the, the money changers in the temple. He was the guy who called the, the, uh, the priest white, whitewashed tombs and things of this nature. But there's something about how Jesus treated people who were far from God that I think he wants us to emulate. It's his character of kindness and goodness and, and, and loving, loving kindness and being willing to forgive and being willing to humble ourselves. I think that's the reason God wanted me to share that with you. I want to challenge us. Hey, that's the goal. That's following Jesus. That's what it looks like. And then when it comes to the practice in everyday life, it's, it's never repaying evil for evil. It's not repaying insult for insult. This is what God says in the Old Testament. You know, the, the one who loves me pursues peace. And Peter's just reiterating that for us. And it's what our Savior did for us. The one who, who could have called legions of angels to end what he was going through did not, but instead went to the cross for us that we might have life. So I want you to bow your heads and hearts for just a moment and, and just do some self-reflection and just ask yourself, Lord, am I, is this an area I need to work on in my life? Do, do I demonstrate kindness and graciousness? Is, is this me? And, and, and if let the Lord, let the Holy Spirit speak to you and just, is there an area you need to work on? There is just some 
And just tell him that. Again, being honest about my failure isn't the end. It's really the beginning. of. And then I want to offer this invitation to you as well. And that is um, for anyone who at this point is not a follower of Jesus. I mean, your life is not characterized by being one who's put his faith and fellowship in Christ. Then I want to invite you today. Christ died for your sins. Christ died for you to bring you the unjust the just for the unjust. Jesus died for you to bring you to God. There's no other way to be right with God. There's no, other, there's no other way to have a relationship with God. There's no other way to have eternal life than to, than to come to Jesus. I want to invite you right now to come to Jesus. Just in your heart, say, Lord, I, I, I want to follow you. I believe and I want to follow you. Just tell the Lord, write that in your heart right now. Come follow Jesus. God, will you take these uh, feeble words this morning and would you use them to your glory? I, I say my feeble words. Your word is not feeble. Your word is powerful and strong and you send it out, Lord, and it accomplishes what you want it to accomplish. Lord, may Peter's words, your words, accomplish in our heart a desire to, to be like our Savior in all these things. Lord, would you help us to repent if repentance is needed? Would you help us to turn and change our mind and begin to live differently than possibly we're living? Lord, would you help us by your Spirit be conformed to the image of our Savior, our King, the Lord Jesus? Pray uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.